0: There's this incredible incredible hyper-masculinity of men mm-hmm. where it's like suddenly to be a man, it's like you've got to be this out-and-out out bro. Mm-hmm. And it's this like aggressive and it's tied into Gamergate. It's tied into men's rights. It's all this reaction to white men at some point are not going to be the majority in America right now. And everyone's like freaking out and the masculinity is like going like through the roof.
1: Welcome to Outliers. Uh, it's a podcast with outliers. And
0: oh, I have <laughs> to be here. Just as you said that, I'm, I'm doing this from my podcasting studio in my home. We are very reporter to reporter here. And just as you said that, like my cat jumped on the mixing board and muted everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's my weird silence. <laughs> but thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah, for joining us. Uh, today we have uh, Sarah Lacey uh, who joins us. And. Uh, Sarah, for those of you, uh, you know, who who know, uh, has been one of the most important voices in the Silicon Valley and, of course, a famous uh, technology journalist. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, she started uh, uh, flagging uh, issues uh, around, uh, you know, Silicon Valley's uh, one of the most uh, iconic and valued company, uh, Uber, and... uh, You just look around today what's happening and almost everything that you that you flagged, Sarah, uh, seems to be uh, playing on. And it's kind of uh, real, at least for people who didn't think, uh, you know, it was real. Uh, So you've been bang on.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I have to say, it was a very, very lonely furrow. We (laughs) were plowing for a very long time time. Hmm. And it certainly wasn't just me. I mean, it was actually a lot of my team. My business partner, Paul Carr, actually wrote the first critical piece on Uber for us in 2012. And that was like really when Uber was just beloved. I mean, no one in the tech press was saying anything bad about them. Hmm. And at the time, that was the time when he deleted the app. And what he pointed to was this hypocrisy in the company's stance of being these like fearless anti-government libertarians. And he was pointing to actually this Um, pattern of backroom deals that they Mm -hmm. were cutting and working with lobbyists and going through all the same channels that they were accusing uh, the taxi lobby of doing. And that's why they were saying the taxi lobby was so corrupt. And they were kind of already becoming this thing Mm -hmm. that they had been supposedly started to stand against. And it was, you know, and he also kind of looked into this Ayn Randian libertarian philosophy that Travis Kalanick was a fan of and talked about how, you know. Crucial to that worldview is this idea that your workers are these, like, disposable commodities. And, mm-hmm. like, man, has all of that turned out to be precious. So even before we got to the point, you know, where I wrote a post saying this company had a systemic sexism and misogyny company – uh, problem from top to bottom, mm-hmm. you know, we were pointing out some of the other issues with this company. And, and it's I mean, this is all true now. I mean, Uber's become one of the biggest corporate lobbyists. Mm-hmm. It has the former head of the CIA working for it. So it's <laughs> co-opting of government has absolutely happened. Yeah, uh, we've seen in the last week or so um, this company did for sure, have a fundamental systemic sexism problem. And we were also one of the first people to point out some of the problems that they had with background checks. Yes. So, yeah, but but despite all of that, I mean, we spent really two to four years uh, with, uh, you know, a lot of people coming after us, you know, including threats, including mm-hmm. threatening our advertisers. We had to change our business model. Mm-hmm. At one point, my security team yes. told me that I was going to get audited my taxes are getting audited now. I mean, Uber has so many connections in so many deep places. And when you're a $70 billion company, man, there's a lot of ways you can mess with a journalist who won't shut up.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and you know, more power to you, uh, Sarah, for, uh, you know, hanging in there and, and you know, just, just questioning them. Uh, you know, since you've tracked uh, Silicon Valley and its companies uh, for such a long time, uh how do you characterize the problem of sexism and racism? Uh, I mean, what is it really about?
0: Well, I mean, I think the first thing to acknowledge is it's not necessarily way worse in Silicon Valley than it is in other major ecosystems in the United States. I mean, Wall Street is also a very white male place. Um, even, you know, when it comes to things like the restaurant industry, and I mean, you would think cooking is the purview of women by the most sexist (laughs) standards, and yet most executive chefs are men. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at the highest levels of any profession profession in the United States, it's very dominated by white men. But I think there's a reason that people hold tech to a higher standard, Mm -hmm. and I think it has to do with all of this talk. For decades, that this place is a meritocracy, and that you can come here with no money in your pockets and succeed just by working really hard, and that's not something that Wall Street promises. Like that's not something that other places promise. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's also a lot of rhetoric about changing the world and being better. And I think when you come at the world with that much self righteousness, and then you have the same ugly biases that a lot of industries have, you rightfully get held to a higher standard. But you know, in terms of what causes it, I think. It hasn't been consistent over the history of the Valley. Like, the consistency is there has been sexism, mm-hmm. but um, it's been a different kind of sexism. Like, back in the early days of Fairchild Semiconductor and the Robert Noyce, Gordon Moore days, it was very madman like. It was like chasing secretaries around desks. There were a lot of marriages broken up mm-hmm. because of someone having an affair with an admin. Um, you know, it was like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this whole era of kind of like, you know, the quote-unquote nerds of Silicon Valley where you had people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg who just were more kind of awkward and shy around women hmm. and just kind of tended to exclude them because that, that wasn't their network. And then once these women weren't sort of in the early ranks of the companies, they kind of didn't ever become the, prom- the primary people in the early ranks of these companies. And so I think there was that sort of secondary wave that was more exclusionary than anything else. And then I think the third wave that we're in now has been this bro wave. And if you like study at all, like what's happened in American culture, like from our presidential election to, you know, um, what happens with teenagers, with social media um, to what's happening in Silicon Valley, there's this incredible, incredible hyper masculinity of men Mm -hmm. where it's like. Suddenly to be a man, it's like you've got to be this out and out bro. Hmm. And it's this like aggressive and it's tied into Gamergate. It's tied into men's rights. It's all this reaction to white men at some point are not going to be the majority in America right now. And everyone's like freaking out and the masculinity is like going like through the roof. Hmm. Um, and it's echoing through our culture a lot. And in Silicon Valley, it's this bro culture. And um, and I think what's what's so Disturbing about mm. the bro culture is it's, it is in some ways more misogynistic and, um, I don't want to say like, I, I hate, I hesitate to say violent because I don't mean everyone is abusing women, yeah. but there's this sort of anger and violence and intention that comes across. Mm. Um, you know, when you talk about, uh, I mean, the most extreme example of this, oddly enough, isn't from from Uber, mm. it's, uh, this guy, Gerber Shahal, mm. who was caught on tape. Uh, in his home, abusing his girlfriend, um, you know, like six, 16 times or something like that. And then, uh, you know, that, that trial got thrown out, but you know, he's sort of pled guilty still and then beat another girl and is now like going to spend a year in prison for breaking parole. And like that guy's got a job at a new venture firm. I mean, it's like there, there Whoa. is no limit to which men will not get more opportunities. And, and the fact that, mistreating women doesn't seem to be a disqualifier. But Mm. I think it's so extreme at Uber because this is the most highly valued company of the era and whoever's the most highly valued company of the era sets the tone. And unfortunately it's this this kind of like angry, aggressive sexism Mm. that's, you know, all of these eras had sort of ugly sexism, but like this one is definitely different in tone. Now the good thing about that is it's so in your face, right? All of these things that leak, it's like, holy shit, you guys are sexist hmm. versus, um, you know, something of maybe the Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg era where it's like, well, you just didn't have a lot of women at the organization. And then people were like, well, it's a pipeline problem. Women aren't as good as science and math. I mean, it's much like harder to parse, but it's hmm. like when this comes out, it's like this stuff is crazy sexist.
1: <laughs> uh, and, and, and one of the uh, things Sarah, is that in ecosystems like India, Uh, Bangalore where a lot of startups and founders uh, look up to uh, the Silicon Valley and the demigods uh, uh, in the valley Uh, what would you tell them because uh, for everything people are looking up to uh, the founders and the companies in the valley.
0: Yeah it's I mean this is one reason that I'm so hard on these founders because I don't think people really realize how much they're like, oh, it's just one company. There's lots of companies. But like that, this is not the reality of the way tech ecosystems work and the way the global tech ecosystem works, whether you're a kid in Minnesota thinking about starting a company one day or your kid in Bangalore, who is, um, you know, it's the this is a home run business. Ninety five percent percent of the returns come from five percent of the companies. And that, what that five percent does and how they act is so much more important than that other 95% put together. So it's not Mm. that everyone in the Valley walks around acting like Travis Kalanick. Trust me, I would not live here and raise my children here (laughs) if that were the reality. Um, But it's the fact that this is what's worshipped. And, you know, what's so interesting is when when the movie Wall Street came out in Mm. America, the old Oliver Stone movie, um, he meant it to be this condemnation of greed of Wall Street culture. And instead, these like kind of douchey t- teenage boys like worshiped G- Gordon Gecko and actually thought it was this really cool movie and actually thought, <laughs> yes, that's where I want to go yeah. and all moved to New York. And there's this whole wave of like horrible people who are moving there to lionize the things that Oliver Stone thought he was critiquing in that movie and exposing in that movie. And and when the social network came out um, about the early days of Facebook, supposedly there was a lot of angst in Silicon Valley about it because that movie just wasn't factual. I mean, it was like 95% bullshit. It wasn't just like, Oh, it's Hollywood. They take liberties. Like none of it was true. I mean, supposedly the whole motivation for starting Facebook was a girlfriend dumping him like Mark, Mark zuckerberg has been with the same girl since he started facebook they now have children like nothing about it was true except there was a guy named mark zuckerberg basically (laughs) um the concern was the aaron sorkinization of facebook had like women walking around in bikinis and people being like not caring if they screwed people over and all of these things that really weren't in the, the the weren't things about silicon valley It was really a harbinger of bro culture. And at the time, I remember talking to one BC in particular who was like, I'm so worried about this movie coming out because it's going to have this Wall Street effect on Silicon Valley. You're going to have all of these people flock here because they think this is how Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook. And they see themselves in that. And they're like, yeah, that's me. I'm going to go to Silicon Valley where I can become a billionaire, billionaire Hmm. being that bro. Hmm. And they did. And. The irony is the person who was so worried about that, who I had that conversation with, was Shervin Pishevar of Sherpa, who is one of the biggest backers and defenders of Travis now. So he very quickly <laughs> got over those concerns. And I don't know if he even sees the irony of that. I mean, he was the subject of a lawsuit with his own company last year that was very bro-y and, like, had to do with mistreatment of women as well. And it, it's just – I don't know how much of it was that movie and then Travis perpetuated it. But like, yeah, I can totally see from as many miles away from of, of where you guys are, <laughs> that people are drawing the wrong conclusions because people are doing it here. Yes. And like they have immediate proximity. And I think what's it's, you know, it's the Steve jobs thing. Hmm. It's hmm. this thing of, you can be a total jerk because Steve jobs was, and it gives people an out. And I think, What's frustrating about that is um, you will never convince me that the genius of Steve Jobs and the success of Apple was because he treated his daughter like garbage and denied her existence for many years and refused to pay her mother any child support while he was a millionaire. Mm. None of that is why iPhones were amazing. Mm. None of it. Mm. And so it's like this idea, this this faulty correlation of truth of looking at someone who treated people around him and mm. in large degree women, um, like total garbage. And then saying that's a blueprint for success. That makes about as much sense as someone putting on a turtleneck and saying, now I'm Steve jobs. Mm. Like, I mean, what it had to do with his, with his genius and those other things were excused. Now, <laughs> if you don't have that genius, uh, guess what? You should be fired. Yeah,
1: clearly. Uh, the the other question is uh, how to deal with it uh, i mean it, it's very clear how to deal with this if you are a journalist i mean i, I you know i can look up to uh, you and and see the way you are going about questioning and and writing but uh, more importantly uh, if you are a victim uh, and if you are the company i mean what 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 are your thoughts on how to deal with this
0: yeah i mean it's you know, it's interesting. It's like I don't know if you probably would, like wouldn't share this with people openly, but like this is actually the second time we're doing the podcast cuz we had technical difficulties the first time, and I'm glad that we're doing it cuz I think I gave an unsatisfying answer to this the first time, and I'm hoping I have a better answer now cuz I've been thinking about it for several days. Because it's it's a it's not an it's not something just gonna answer you. I mean, like look, on the journalist side, it is really hard to be out there saying this, but like this is the lesson I learned like when I moved here in the peak of the dot-com bubble Mm -hmm. and then in a couple years every journalist i know had so many clips they were embarrassed about that, like they couldn't show anyone Mm because they had been so wrong and so snowed by these companies and and, you know i and then at the beginning of the rise of web 2.0 like i was one of i was working for business week then and i was one of the only journalists for you know big east coast publication that was, was like writing really positive things things about companies like youtube and facebook and saying like no these actually could be really huge businesses all of the promises that didn't pan out in the early days of the internet can come true now for a lot of reasons and every journalist was like super mean to me like that was the first time i was really publicly attacked um and ironically it was for being more positive like very different place than i am in now um but i so i think you have to like be so conscious as a reporter of like what side of history do you want to be on and like in 10 years or not do you want to be right? Or do you want to have been wrong? Because it's way easier to spend four years with everyone telling you what an idiot you are and how you don't get it, Mm -hmm. than have to live the rest of your life with like a whole couple years of clips that you can't show anyone. So it's like, (laughs) you know, it's hard as a journalist. But like, yeah, ultimately, like, there's this record of what you wrote and what you believed. And so it's like, there's something to motivate you there. Mm -hmm. But if you're just a person inside these companies, it is really, really hard. It is really hard if you're a woman because you will get retaliated against probably if you call HR. I mean, that was happening at Uber and like we're supposed to be this woke meritocracy. Um, It is really hard to come forward. It's your career may very well be ruined. Mm -hmm. Look at Gamergate. Women's addresses were released. Young children were put at risk. Um, I don't begrudge any woman who doesn't quote unquote have the courage to come forward because I don't think anyone should have to have their life destroyed for a cause. But I'm grateful that there are women who do. And and I'm grateful that there are women like Susan Fowler who just came forward in this Uber thing or Ellen Powell with the Kalina Perkins trial who did because all it really takes is one woman coming forward Mm -hmm. and saying this is not acceptable for the culture to slowly change. Like I think without Ellen Powell, we don't have Susan Fowler and we don't have, you know, there's a woman who came out last night about uh, harassment at, um, at Tesla. It's like, I think a lot of it's going to start coming out now because a couple women have, and they've shown that you can, and you still can't get other jobs. But like, That's a whole ecosystem thing that takes time. And I think if India is not in that position yet, the Mm -hmm. best advice I have for women is to like form tribes Mm -hmm. within the ecosystem, Um, form connections with other women, because one thing that happens when you and it's not unique to women, Mm -hmm. it happens with minorities as well. If you're a minority (laughs) position inside of an organization, um, you get turned into basically someone who who sabotages other minorities i mean people refer to this as like the catty woman phenomenon Mm. uh when it comes to women working in large companies where it's like oh well women won't support other women and the worst people you know taking out women or other women and it's it's less anything to do with women and it's more has to do with being the person who made it on the inside and this this weird psychology of you kind of gain your place there by yeah. shooting down other women who claim they're being kept out. And I think that that's where Silicon Valley got stuck for many years and didn't make strides with sexism. And I think what you're seeing now, which is such a factor of what we just experienced with our presidential election Mm -hmm. for the first time since I've lived here, I have seen women unabashedly supporting and defending each other. And this was actually what Indian immigrants did really well in Silicon Valley. This is one of the biggest reasons that Indian immigrants have done better as a minority in Silicon Valley than like, you know, African-Americans or, um, or Hispanics or Mm -hmm. women is because they banded together and they fought for each other and they had each other's backs. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really hard to do because it's like living in a patriarchy. There's the psychology used against you to manipulate you. And a lot of women fall into it. But I think if women can recognize that that's what's happening and band together themselves, Mm -hmm. like that's, you'll get there way quicker than we did. Like I just announced, I didn't announce this is actually kind of secret, but, yeah. um, I just started having, um, a dinner series at my house okay. like one month for female founders and investors and women, younger women who want to become, um, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like this really casual once a month salon dinner at my house that Silicon Valley bank is sponsoring and paying for just because they're like, Jesus, we've got to do something about this problem. <laughs> um, and it's called the 3% Club because there's only 3% of uh, companies in mm. Silicon Valley that are venture funded are, are have women CEOs. And it doesn't change. And it's sure. not going to change yeah. until women start working together. And there's no agenda. It's just every month women need to come together and build relationships because we're isolated within these companies where that doesn't exist. And mm. so you've got to create that artificially. So like, I mean, very long winded answer, but my answer is really that women need to like find tribes and like strength within each other. Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and, and one of the parties in, in this whole issue, uh, and you, know, you you yourself have been questioning them, uh, are investors and the board members. Now, a, a lot of time mm-hmm. you think of them as so-called custodians of uh, governance and uh, culture uh, and, and so on. Uh, what what should be their role? Aren't they also failing? I mean, it's one thing to, I mean, of course, founders have to show the way and all, but I'm sure the board and investors also have their roles to play and they are failing too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a big open question in Silicon Valley right now because it's changed. So when um, in the past, like in the history of the Valley up through the dot-com crash, investors played a very big role. And investors effectively controlled the companies and they would stack the boards with people that were loyal to the investors over the founders. And at the end of the day, it it, it took so much money to build companies at that point
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, that founders would own very tiny amounts of the company um, by the time it went public and have very little control in it. It wasn't like now where you have founders controlling boards, where you have founders who have like, you know, 50% of the company when it gets bought or go public. And that has to do with like the compression of the cost of starting a business, basically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, the dot com bust, there were all these people who really felt like they were wronged. So, you know, there were these founders who moved out here and were very idealistic in the early 20s and got ousted from their companies Mm -hmm. or were told they had to have adult supervision to come run these companies. Mm -hmm. And they didn't like the direction the companies went in. And so starting with Web 2.0, when there were cheaper ways to build companies, there started to be this thing called the cult of the founder that's really still raging in Silicon Valley today. And Mm -hmm. the idea is that the founder is always right. And even if a founder is failing, they should not be ousted because no, essentially at that point, a company is so broken that no one can fix it. So you (laughs) might as well let the founder essentially go down with the (laughs) ship. and there's higher odds the founder could fix it than anyone else coming in to fix that mess. Yeah. And this was a belief that was like popularized by Peter Thiel, Mm -hmm. who was really aggressive about it. And I mean, I remember debating this with him, like, I don't know, uh, 12 years ago or so (laughs) when it was really a radical idea. It was popularized by Sean Parker, Mm -hmm. who was really screwed over by Sequoia Capital when he was doing Plaxo and was the one who coached Mark Zuckerberg and how to control his own company. And then, like we were saying at Uber, biggest company at the time, that was the template for what you do. And then it was really worked into the psychology of Y Combinator. So you kind of had these three big forces that were pushing this Mm -hmm. and led to this sort of adoption of this being the norm. Okay, so then what do VCs do? Because they're basically in a service business and they're selling the commodity of money. And there isn't that much differentiation. And there's a ton of money in Silicon Valley. So every VC starts trying to position themselves as how founder friendly can we be.
2: Yeah.
0: And everyone is lining and and basically, even if a founder is like walking in and like clubbing people in the head and like just lighting money on fire and like (laughs) doing like the worst (laughs) things you could do, VCs feel like it is better to lose that investment than fire that founder and look to everyone else to be anti-founder. And so we've worked ourselves into this state where no founder will ever be ousted because of the marketing position that VCs have. And then on top of that, a lot of them just don't have the control. I mean, the truth about Uber is uh, Garrett Camp and Travis control the board. Yes. And that's just the reality. I mean, there is that much the investors can do other than say, we're not going to continue to fund you. But realistically, it hasn't been the VCs who've been funding Uber for a long time. The last round was the Saudi government. Yeah. (coughs) So the kind of sad, poetic justice of all this (laughs) is you have VCs sitting around who are on Uber's cap table and being seen as complicit in all this, who actually can't do anything. But, you know, they could do what mid- and Frida Kapoor have done, which has, you know, come out and said, this is broken and we are coming out publicly because every effort to influence you behind the scenes has failed. So there's for sure a lack of cowardice, like like, for sure. And I'm not trying to let them off the hook, but there actually isn't anything they can do. I mean, some of the early investors in Uber like got fired from the board, like Travis doesn't even talk to anymore. Or I mean, it's it's a pretty broken company. Hmm. Now, I think the only thing... So part of what's happening right now with Uber is it's this like war over the cult of the founder. And it's like, oh, my God, has the cult of the founder gone too far? And does anyone here have the guts to say that? And yeah. does anyone have the guts to say, no, we back the company, not Travis? So all mm-hmm. the investors are in this position where they have to basically choose between Uber and Travis at this point. And so far, everyone's picking Travis, except for the Kapors who publicly said this isn't working. Yes. Um and the only thing that might give people hope who think, you know, a 100 percent dogmatic cult of the founder is a bad thing is uh, Zenefits. Zenefits mm. was the first company that I've seen of this wave where they did so many illegal things. Mm-hmm. They did so many messed up things. Their culture had a lot of the echoes of Uber. And the founder kicked out and unceremoniously kicked out. And the, those managers were kicked out. And David Sachs came in and changed the board and you know, brutally, step-by-step, step, remade that company into something respectable and saved it. And so I think probably what's happening in a lot of the Valley right now is, wow, is, is Uber gonna be the second far bigger example of that? But so far, there's a lot of people who it's, it is the path of least resistance mm-hmm. to say nothing. And I think investors are in this weird moment because all they do is marketing. I mean, they're a service business selling money. Like, it's just marketing. And so they're sitting there going, shit, if we come out and say we're pro-Travis,
2: mm-hmm.
0: every founder of the world thinks we are the most founder-friendly company <laughs> because, like, everyone's acknowledging, like, this guy is so beyond toxic at this point. And it's like, this great, like, no, we've been supporting Travis. Like, look at this tweet I sent. Like, that's really good positioning if you want to be founder-friendly ab- above anything else. Unfortunately, this is playing out in the era of Trump where women are pissed and minorities are pissed Hmm. and in doing so you are basically saying a white man who has created this culture that screws over drivers and screws over women and threatens journalist families and all the things that he himself has admitted to and has done his phony crocodile tears that they're so horrible. Hmm. You're saying, no, this white guy still deserves another shot. Hmm. Fuck all of those other Mm. people. And so it's like, really, you got to choose which talking point you like to sit on stage and and say, is it that you're founder friendly or that you care at all about Mm. diversity and other people? Because Mm. this company has backed investors into a corner where they cannot have it both ways.
1: Yeah. I I think, Sarah, this is also quite an example of a bad, I mean, a lot of people don't believe that bad culture can actually ruin uh, a company now i mean for a lot of people it's very hard to believe uh, so what if the culture is bad so what if founder is sexist or abrasive uh, i mean you know the business goes on but but that may not be the case right i mean it, it i mean the way i mean you look at uber from out here and it looks like it it i mean if if things go this way it might actually go da- downhill right i mean it's it, i
0: mean the question I'm hearing people say is whether or not it's possible that Uber goes to nothing. I mean, it's not, I think everyone assumes like there is going to be a decrease in valuation Mm. and it will be shocking if there isn't. Um, So I think it depends on like, what are we even talking about with a worst case scenario of Uber? Right point? Because it's right now because it's escalating so quickly. And Mm. the problem with Uber in particular is it's a commodity product. Mm. So this isn't like Facebook or Apple Like whenever – when there was this whole controversy about people in Foxconn factories who were building um, iPhones and iPods committing suicide because of the worker conditions, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of people who wanted consumer care. But ultimately, consumers weren't going to boycott Apple because they needed an iPhone and there was no other thing to the iPhone. Where Uber is a massive disadvantage is it's a commodity product, particularly in major cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. Lyft literally has the same drivers. Mm -hmm. It's the same price point. It is the same app that works in the same way. <laughs> it's a really convenient boycott to make. So I think that's that's part of the problem here is that there's just not a lot of defensibility in that business. Hmm. And it's also a business model that we don't even know if it's working because they've been burning so much money. Hmm. Um, but it's interesting that you say people don't think culture can hurt companies because there's a distinction, at least here, mm-hmm. between the two things you there's a sense that someone can be a jerk Mm -hmm. and still be successful. But people really do think rotten cultures destroy companies here. Like there is a real reverence for culture. And that's why you see people freaking out about Uber right now in a way they didn't before. Because before it was like, okay, he's a jerk. But he's galvanized his company to be aggressive and do great work. And they have this us against the world mentality, but it's working for them. And what we've seen increasingly is, is no, there is a team of protected A players where that the HR team doesn't even have any say over and the (laughs) other people of the company are treated like garbage. And that's what's freaking everyone out, is that it's a broken culture. Mm. Everyone knew Travis was the person he was. And so it's this difference, right? Because- Steve Jobs could be a jerk to people, hmm. but he got the best out of them, and it was a high achieving culture. Yeah, and it's like this fine line distinction between it, and maybe that's sort of like lost watching this, watching these companies, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: over seasons, and seas, and, and continents and landmass. But it's like Apple could be a hard place to work, but at the end of the day, the thing, the ways. Steve Jobs was hard charging at his company, created better products that they were proud to represent, and that's not happening at mm-hmm. Uber.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No, no, very, very well said. In fact, I mean that's what I, I, I meant to articulate. That I mean, culture, bad culture can actually bring down a company, and then it it, it would be good if more people believe in that. Uh, clearly, um,
0: I, I mean this is why the story is so important, and this is why. <laughs> Xenophys was a very big story over here, but this is why, you know, Uber is even more important in a lot of ways because it is so looked up to around the world. And it is this thing that has justified this horrible treatment of drivers, of, you know, of women, of rules, of law, of any sense that someone should feel like the government and laws are protecting them when they get inside the backseat of someone's car. Uber has stood for for so many things that have rippled out around the world so broadly. And if all of those things pull this company down, like that will have just as big of a ripple effect. Don't you think, (laughs) I mean, what do you think happens there with people's view of company building? If like Travis gets kicked out and Uber is like just humiliated and goes to, I don't know, becomes like, $5 $5 billion company, like something way smaller than,
2: because
0: yeah. I think it's plausible that it goes to zero personally. But what do you think is the impact from halfway around the world if that happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, no, it, it will be massive. And and I, I, I can already hear the chatters uh, you know, among the founders, especially, I mean, if you look at Ola, which is uh, an Uber rival in India, uh, the founder uh, Bhavish Agarwal uh, is supposed to be this aggressive, uh, obsessed uh, founder. Uh, and, and many people in the company talk about uh, you know, how he believes that if he is competing with Uber, he's got to be equally aggressive. Now, I'm sure mm-hmm. he's watching this very closely. Uh, and I'm sure people in his company are, are really watching this closely.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, we talked about this a little bit on take one of this podcast. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think people they should be, and a lot of people in India should be looking at is China. Yes, I about Valley, to come Valley to that. Silicon Valley is a very particular, unique ecosystem that has been built over 50 years and you're not going to replicate, no no place is going to replicate. I mean, it was built in the era of transistors and like it's had all these, you know, you'd have to go back in time to replicate hmm. Silicon Valley, quote unquote. Hmm. I, think if, I think it's a much better model for Indian entrepreneurs to look at the billion dollar companies that have been built in China, because those have been built under very different rules than how U.S. companies were built. And they were built based on huge population, um, you know, with a lot of infrastructure challenges and, uh, you know, payment challenges and all these things. And how do you how do you build for a billion person population where there's mixed income levels and people don't have credit cards? It's like that's what emerging markets should be looking at, because that's what China's done amazingly well. The U.S. has never done well, because it's never had to. And I think one of the most interesting things is, I mean, in, already in terms of volume, mm-hmm. Didi Chuxing is the largest ride-sharing company in the world, not Uber. Yeah. And I think in the future, in terms of market cap, Didi is. And I think it's a plausible scenario that in the future, <clears throat> Didi is the one mm-hmm. who is dominating the U.S., I think it's possible if Uber gets humbled, they wind up buying Uber's (laughs) assets or maybe they buy Lyft's assets They're investors in both of them (laughs) for God's sake. So it could wind up happening in any way. And like, look for, I spent two years or a year and a half or so closely, closely covering the war in China between Uber and ED. And we were the first publication to say, by the way, this is not going well for Uber back when Uber was trying to pretend they were crushing it. And that's what everyone was writing. (laughs) And um, it was very, very clear, like a year before they closed down, if you were talking to people on the ground in China and looking at this, that that Uber was not going to win this market at all. And Uber's best hope was for the Chinese government to shut them down yeah. so that they could get out of the market in a saving way. And that just wasn't going to happen. And they finally had to cut their losses because it was going to bankrupt the company. Yes. But if you look at Didi, is the only company that has beat Uber. Mm-hmm. Have they done it by acting like Travis? No. Mm-hmm. They've been an aggressive company <laughs> They have matched them on subsidies when they had to. They've raised a ton of money. Mm-hmm. They've in some ways beat Uber at their own game because they've raised a ton of money and they've aggressively expanded. But they haven't done all these mean things. It goes back to the Steve Jobs thing. Like yeah. was his genius because he insisted on a price point and made his engineers figure it out? Or was his brilliance because he treated his daughter like shit?
2: Mm.
0: Like mm. Didi has been every bit tense in terms of the business. Mm. But they haven't had all this other ugly stuff that is destroying Uber. And it's like, you know, this is the thing. Like I've had people who've said to me, you know, yes, Uber's evil. Okay. We all acknowledge Uber's evil now, but they've stopped drunk driving accidents. And there's good that they've done in the world. And I'm like, yes, and Lyft has proven you can do all of those things same things without being evil. (laughs) I mean, it's like this, all this stuff is tangential. So if I'm the Ola guy, which by the way, it seems like from the outside, India is the only big foreign market Uber might win. So Mm -hmm. I would submit the playbook isn't really working for those guys. Mm -hmm. I would look at the one company that's beat Uber. Did they do it by acting like Travis? No, they did it by winning. The other thing about China is who, who was the, front person for Didi battled with, with Travis. It was a woman. Yes. China's tech scene... <coughs> excuse me, my daughter's giving me a cold. Uh, China's tech scene has uh, double the penetration of women in sea-level offices than in the US or the UK or anywhere else in the wow. West. And far more of it women as capitalists.
2: That,
1: <coughs> that's
0: example. So it depends on which market wants to look up to. And I, I think that they would... Do better as a place trying to build in a disparate, challenging emerging market. To look at China, not the U.S.
1: Yeah, great, great insights, Sarah. Especially the point that you make about uh, looking at the right role models. Uh, you know, for, you know, for founders and startups based in India. I think you make a great point about looking at China, and uh, equally important is for founders here to look at what's happening with Uber. Uh, great lessons it it was great fun talking to you Sarah and I must also thank you for this take two of uh, the podcast recording for your enormous patience
0: well and I should say because I said it on the first recording and now no one's going to hear it like I'm such a fan of the work that you guys have been doing in Factor Daily I mean you guys have kind of become my must read of figuring out what's happening with Flipkart and Ola and and all of these um all of these big unicorns over there who all seem to be struggling i mean who do you think the big company is going to be in india when all the dust shakes out
1: you know uh, in fact it's interesting earlier this morning i had a very good conversation with someone who has watched this ecosystem and he said it will take another generation of indian entrepreneurs uh, before uh, they have uh, what it takes to compete with an amazon and uber
0: yeah it's, i mean amazon yeah. in particular like i'm not sure if, let's say uber survives yeah what's happening right now we actually get to a point where Amazon and Uber are directly competing. Like Uber's not going to compete with them. I mean, like Google has struggled to compete head to head with Amazon. Like yeah. Amazon is the hardest company in the world <laughs> to compete with, maybe next to Alibaba.
1: Yes, 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 uh, and and that's what it is coming. You know, it, it's becoming uh, out here because if you look at the Indian market, it is primarily becoming a battleground for uh, Amazon versus Alibaba. That's what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I actually first read that uh on your site. I think I just uh uncharacteristically stole it from you. But uh you guys have done like amazing, amazing work. And um, you know, i I'm I'm really impressed at how much courage you have in standing up to people there too, because it's it order it with the younger mm-hmm. ecosystem, I'm sure. You,
1: you are you are an inspiration. Uh come over sometime, Sarah, and uh, I look forward to meeting you sometime and hope to keep chatting with you. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you so much. You
1: take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.